good morning, everyone. I, uh, as you can see, we're having a little bit of uh, audio-visual issues, so hopefully we'll get it fixed. But I wonder if we can just get started without the slides and then we'll try to catch up, if that's okay. All right. Uh, so I think what I might do is I might just advance the slides here so that I know, I know the points, but uh, I know uh, don't skip anything, but maybe display it later. All right, so, um, so good morning. My name is Bert Lee. Um, I'm currently the uh, head of medical education and global critical care at the NIH. And uh, I've also spent some time in, uh, in Kajabi, Kenya for a number of years. And um, I think this issue of ethics uh, for, uh, for clinical medicine has come up uh, multiple, multiple times throughout my career, of course, and, and I'm sure it has in yours. Um, there's different dimensions of ethics. You know, I'm in the ICU. I'm an, I'm an ICU specialist, and so I deal with a lot of end-of-life kind of, uh, of things, and, and I'm sure you deal with other kinds of uh, ethical dilemmas. But the ethics that I want to talk about is actually more like day-to-day pragmatic things, not some of these you know, really heavy controversial issues, but things that are actually really uh, more like day-to-day things for a physician uh, or for uh, other clinicians. So... So the title, uh, if you could see it, you would say Clinical Ethics, uh, the Impact of Reciprocity and Token Effect on Medical Practice and Research. Okay. So let me get started uh, with that. And um, uh, you won't be able to see the slides, obviously, but uh, there's two sort of seminal papers uh, or seminal concepts I want to start with as a background before we get into... um, uh, more of the finer point. So, the so seminal paper number one, or, uh, or seminal concept number one, is the concept of reciprocity. So, to set you up, there's a paper by, uh, by Harvey in the Journal of Neurosciences, uh, and, and they do a very interesting experiment. So, what, what they do there is uh, they recruit a whole, whole bunch of people, and they have them basically look at some piece of art. Okay, so, let's say this is art here, okay? And then they say, do you like this piece of art or not? Okay. So you don't have to be an artist. You don't even have to like art. You don't have to have any, any creativity. You're just ordinary people who are asked to say, do you like this painting or not? Okay. Now, there are, you know, these are fairly famous, uh, famous paintings that you might see at a museum. Um, and you just have to, you know, have to say, I like it on a scale of one and a half. Okay. Pretty simple. The second part about that experiment is that they actually pay you $300 for it. It doesn't take long. Just I like it, don't like it. Okay? Not to know anything. They're not asking for any history or the artist. Nothing. Just you like it or not like it. And it's a $300 uh, $300 reward participating in this experiment. Okay? Everybody got that? Now, this is the key part, okay? $300 that you get as a, as a participant, they say it was given to you by company A versus company B. And they make that very clear in the beginning. Okay. Should be honest. So, so, um, okay. so let's say uh, you are asked to rate the painting and you are paid by company A. Then when you're looking at the painting, as you're looking at it, there's a beautiful painting but there's a tiny logo of a company that either was the company that, was, that gave you the three hundred dollars, or it could be the other company that didn't give you the three hundred dollars. I wish I wish you were you want the setup here? Okay. So okay. that is not working. Now. So um, so so all you're saying is I like it, don't like it. And then there's a little label that says. This is the company that sponsored you the dollars was the So first thing they ask the participants is, number one, do you think the company's sponsorship will affect your judgment about the same thing? And what do you think people said? said, no way. I am an objective person. I'm an honest person. I would not be influenced by such things. Okay? But do you think it affected... The rating. Yeah, they clearly inflated the rating if you were sponsored by the company. Now, now remember, the associated with the company is kind of, okay? 
you would do just like, it had nothing to do with anything. It would be just a random assignment. And if you were uh, paid by a company, you you like it better. Okay. Now, the part that I didn't tell you about, which is a critical part of this, is that this was not at a museum or just on the wall that it was Excuse me. Okay. Um, so, um, so what you would see on the slide now is actually a list, for example, of all the U.S. politicians that receive uh, financial support from drug companies. Okay. If you could see the list, there'd be. Uh, I think I have a list of about 30 people. Oops. Now I lost the screen as well. Yes. So, so, so I lost about. Uh, uh, so there's about 30 people here, and they they received anywhere from uh, you know uh, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars to several million dollars. And if you were to look at the list, okay, uh, there's an equal number of Republicans and, and, and Democrats. In case you're wondering, okay. Uh, but the question is, when your your politicians get paid by drug companies, what kind of policies do you think they'll be performing? Okay. Now, in some cases, they may deliberately make policy choices knowing that they're getting essentially bribed, right? But probably most of the time, they don't even realize they're being influenced. They think they're being objectively fair, but they're going to still make decisions on uh, that's favorable to drug companies. Sorry. 
have a I have a next slide. <laughs> You'll have to believe me, okay? Uh, that actually talks about U.S. federal agency government officials. Okay? You know, we like you, so we're going to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so what it shows is the percentage of federal officials that regulate an entity, okay? Like, for example, the Department of Commerce that might regulate all the, you know, all the companies that trade stocks and stuff, or the, or, or the Health and Human Services, you know, uh, like the NIH, uh, that, 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 that may be involved in, in drug trials, or, or the FDA that regulates drugs. One out of five people who are senior government officials actually directly trade in stocks. So then, let's take it to a uh, more research area. Here's a paper by Dunn. Uh, it's in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2014. And they're looking at um, all of the published data for, for the role of oseltamivir in patients with influenza. Okay? So that's Tamiflu for, for, uh, you know, for others who may not be uh, aware of the generic term. And what they looked at is this is a systematic review, you know, which means they're putting together all of the randomized trials that's been done on oseltamivir and, the, and its effect on, um, um, on, um, on clinical outcome. And they, they looked at, okay, which systematic reviews had authors that had a conflict of interest? That is, they either work for pharmaceutical companies or they receive some significant grant from them. Okay? Yes. Okay? And there's a mic right there for you. There is a mic. Okay. It's like I can't really wander with this thing, huh? Okay. Let me see. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. So let me just take you quickly back. So, 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 so that's the classic study by Harvey I was talking about. Those are the paintings with the logos right next to it. Okay. So that's the study I was referring to. And I've just shown you this one, which is the um, all the... Uh, U.S. senators and politicians who receive millions of dollars. Uh, and then here's a chart showing the senior government officials who actually directly own stocks over items that they regulate. Okay? This is what's allowed in the U.S. Okay? We're not talking about some other country that you might imagine. This is the U.S. Okay? And then now we're at the, at the topic of actual research outcome. Okay? So here is uh, 37 systematic reviews, a bunch of systematic reviews on the exact same topic of does oseltamivir work. And then, and then they divided the papers into those that had a conflict of interest, okay, so, so COI present versus those without COI. And what do you think was going to be the final conclusion of the systematic reviews? Okay, what do you think? Yeah. Okay, there you go. Okay, if you had a conflict of interest, 88% of them says this is the great drug. Okay, but when conflict of interest is absent, only 17% said that. Okay, this is what we mean by reciprocity. I'm not saying these people are deliberately lying, okay, but they're influenced clearly by this concept of reciprocity. So, um, I think yesterday when I was teaching evidence-based medicine, somebody asked me about guidelines, you know, uh, uh, how reliable are guidelines. Well, that's a complicated question, but we can look at guidelines from the same, um, uh, you, know, you know, same starting point of um, the conflict of interest. Okay. So if you do that, um, here's a paper by, uh, by Newman in BMJ 2011. Uh, they looked at North American clinical guidelines and what they did was only two years before and one year after publication of that guideline. So it's, it's, it's a fairly narrow window to see how many of the panelists on the guidelines who were making recommendations had conflict of interest. Okay? And if you didn't realize this before, it was actually vast majority of them. Okay? In, of the 15 panelists, for example, in the American Diabetic Association guidelines that you may be using or, or uh, relying upon, 87% of them had conflict of interest. And then the, the American Association of Cardiology Guidelines about, about heart disease, uh, 83% of them had conflict of interest. Okay. And then if you compare government-sponsored guidelines, so these are like the NIH-sponsored guidelines, 
versus the specialty guidelines. These are like the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, etc. There's a vast difference again in the in the in the percentage of uh, guidelines that have conflict of interest. Okay. So I think a lot of physicians, for example, don't realize that the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundations, I mean, these are good charities and good uh, organizations, but they actually have huge conflicts of interest, and, 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 uh, and what they recommend may or may not be in your patient's uh, best interest. Okay? And a similar paper by Lenzer saying that actually 71% of the chairs of these uh, of the committees and 90% of the co-chairs had a strong financial conflict of interest. Okay? So something for you to be aware of if you weren't aware before. All right. So that's ethics study or seminal ethics study number one. Concept is reciprocity. Yes? So did the Sunshine Act really only mandate, not that I have that full act memorized, but that, did that only mandate physicians or clinicians? Um, I believe it's all physicians and then uh, people who... Uh, 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 who, uh, I mean, and certainly all physicians who get Medicare funding, uh, but I think it also involves people who do research who get federal funding that they have to declare their conflict of interest. So I'm going to get to that in a little bit, okay? Uh, and there's a website that you can check out if you want to, you know, see uh, if there are any conflict of interest. So let me uh, move on to the second seminal study. So this is now equally important concept that, that, that we need to cover uh, so that we're on the same background before we get into some of the finer details, okay? So these are just kind of fun things, okay? I, I mean, it's a, really a fun study. This is a paper by Mazar. Um, and uh, this takes place actually in a, in a college dormitory uh, at MIT, okay? Uh, so I think uh, it looks like some of you are probably in college, uh, uh, but... Um, so you're probably really familiar with this setting. So what, what we're talking about is a typical college dormitory. A bunch of people live together in a dorm, but there is one common kitchen that you all share. Right? You guys all see what I'm talking about? And then in the common kitchen, there's a common refrigerator. Right? What they did here is they walked into a dormitory uh, kitchen with a refrigerator, and they put six cans of Coke in the refrigerator, all separated individually, no name, no explanation, no warning about taking it, and they just walk away. Okay? Then they come back 72 hours later, and they want to know what happened to these cans of Coke. Okay? So if you're familiar with the concept, they're looking at the Kaplan-Meier curve of cans of Coke. Okay? And see what, see what the mortality is at the end of 72 hours. Okay? All right. So, so actually, this is worth thinking about for a little bit. You don't have to admit to, your, you know, admit to us what you would do, but what do you think happened here? Okay? Okay? How many think all six cans would be present 72 hours later? Raise your hand. Okay? Let me go to the other extreme. How many think none would be left? A lot of hands, okay? Is that because that's what you would do? <laughs> okay? How many think it's somewhere in the middle? Maybe two, three, or four, or something like that? Okay? So maybe uh, a, a, a close second, uh, but still less than the uh, group, okay? Yeah, so actually what they found was indeed uh, 0% survival, okay? 100% mortality, okay? Okay? So does that shock anybody? Okay? You know, I mean... We've all lived in these kind of situations. And, you know, if you don't label it, you know, maybe it's okay. I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm just going to grab it, right? Okay. So, so that's, that was the very initial observational part of the study, okay? Uh, now, uh, the second part is they go to now a different dormitory, but the exact same setup, except this time, instead of six cans of Coke, they actually leave six $1 bills. Kind of strange, right? There's a plate, dollar bills, in the refrigerator. <laughs> they walk away. And same thing, 72-hour survival of six $1 bills. Now, think about it. What do you think happened? So you're saying 100% survival. Why do you say 100% survival? I feel like uh, people are going to 
attach more meaning to the dollar bills than the Coke? Like someone maybe what do you mean by meaning? Um, I think they will probably see that. I know that's not mine. Uh-huh. So they probably are attaching a possession. Uh-huh. So like it's someone's one dollar bill. Okay, so you're attaching more meaning to the dollar bill than a can of Coke for some reason. Okay. Any opposing thought? How many people think of money will be all gone? Yeah? So, why would you say that? I have no faith in people. <laughs> you have no faith in people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So, who agrees with this gentleman or that gentleman? Okay. Who, who, who agrees with him? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, who agrees with that gentleman? Okay. I'm not sure which of the two is more theologically correct, but okay. But okay. So, um, so actually, um, 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 you were right here, uh, and, 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 and there was 100% survival of the cash. Okay. Now, here's the fascinating part, is that besides the refrigerator in this kitchen, there's another appliance or device. And guess what that was? It was a vending machine. That sold Coke for one dollar. Now, now, kind of chew on that thought for a minute, okay? Because this is really, really important. Okay, everybody took the cans of Coke. Nobody took the dollar bills, even though they are equivalent in value. You could have literally taken the dollar bill, put it into the Coke machine, and you would have gotten a can of Coke. It's identical. Even though it's identical, people perceived it very differently, like you're saying. Okay? So, so then these researchers now did a more sophisticated version of this. Okay? And so here is this here. So it's a bit complicated, so try to follow me here. So what they did was they did a math test with these MIT students, right? So I think you all know that MIT is known for mathematics, so these students should be very good at it. Uh, so, but they were only given five minutes to answer 20 questions. So in other words, even, even if they were very good at math, they didn't have much time. And so it's challenging to get a very high score, even for MIT students. However, for every question that you get right, you get $10. So you could win up to $200 if you get a perfect score. Okay? So again, you know, these are poor college students. It's a lot of money. So they're motivated. And so part A of the, of the experiment... They uh, conduct the test, and then there's a proctor in the room. So let's say I'm the proctor, and you're the student taking the test. And at the end of the five minutes, the bell goes off. I ask you to lay your, your, um, your pencils or pen down. And then you turn in the test, and I grade it. And let's say you get a five, and you get a ten, and you get a twenty. I pay you accordingly, and that's how it works. Okay? So that was the first part of the study. So... But as you can see there, the, the average score, or the mean score, was only 3.5. So in other words, even for MIT students, this was a challenging test. Not much time. Okay, 3.5. And the highest score is a 10. As you know, most things have a bell-shaped curve. Some people perform higher, some people perform lower. And the highest score was a 10. And this is a, a statistical way to say... What is the probability that someone will get a perfect score on this test under the same conditions? It's, it's practically nil, right? Because even the best student got, only got a 10, okay? So therefore, nobody got a perfect score. Make sense? Okay, so that's, that's the setup. Okay, here comes part B, and part B is the exact same idea, five minutes, 20 questions, MIT students, but different MIT students, and you... Take the test, but here's a twist. I ask you to put down your pencils, except I'm going to now ask you to grade your own test. I'm going to give you the answers on the board, and you just say, I got this right, this wrong, this right. Okay? What do you think might happen? Why would the scores go up? Why does it go up? No accountability. No accountability. So are you saying they're going to cheat? Okay. So actually, to make the test even more, the experiment more interesting, it wasn't just that you grade yourself. After you grade it, I ask you to shred your original test. And then I'm asking you to turn in the score on that little piece of paper, just the score. In other words, 
There's no way for me to verify that if it's a true score or not. Okay? So that's the second condition. You grade yourself, you shred the original test, and you just turn in a piece of paper and you give it to me, and you make whatever, $200, $100, whatever you claim on your piece of paper. So what's going to happen to that score of 3.5? It's going to go up. Anybody think it's going to say the same? You do? <laughs> oh, way up. I, I thought you were going to say the same. <laughs> okay. Now, what do you think the highest score is? 20. People are going to claim 20. Okay. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. But this is the interesting part. Okay. So uh, after you shred the test, it did go up. And it doubled, basically, right? You went from 3.5 to 6.2, and the highest score was a 20. But probably the most important part of this is what percentage of the students claimed a 20? Now, remember that the original test is shred, right? You get, you get to make up to $200. That's a fair amount of money for college students, right? What's that? Oh, I mean, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was after the test was done. You said, you know, now, now we're going to grade it, and then, and then we're going to shred the thing and then put down your answer. Yeah, so it was just part of the test. Yeah. I mean, you can probably do some math and realize the average and do some fancy calculations, but, 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 but what's interesting is the percentage of people who actually claimed the perfect score was a tiny, tiny fraction. Okay. This is like thousands of MIT students who took this. Okay. Uh, 0.2%. So, so what they theorize in this study are the following things. One is, we're all liars. Okay. Uh, we all tend to cheat if we can. Okay. However, there is something in the back of our mind somewhere. God, maybe your mother. Okay. But, but there's a conscience in there that says, we're not going to cheat all the way. Okay. And actually, the theory is we cheat to the extent that we still feel good about ourselves. Okay? So in other words, if I go from, if I claim a few extra points, you know, if I didn't drop my pencil, I, I probably would have gotten that one correct kind of thing, you know? Uh, and so I'll just take credit for it, because I knew that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you're not willing to go to 20 necessarily, because that's a little bit outrageous, and then you feel like, okay, you know, then, I, then I, I must be dishonest, I must be a cheater. Okay? But you're willing to cheat just to the extent that you still feel good about yourself. Okay? So that's a theory. However, if you notice, there are still 0.2% of people who did cheat all the way, and those are people who are sociopathic. Right? They don't care. Okay? They have no conscience. But fortunately, the rate of sociopathy is very, very low in society, which is a wonderful thing uh, uh, and, and reassuring. Okay? All right. Now comes the last part of the experiment. Last part of the experiment is the exact same setup, different MIT students. Again, you take the test, five minutes, 20 questions. You grade yourself and you shred the evidence just like in Part B. But here's the difference now. After you write down your score... Okay? Then you're instructed to not to give the, the score sheet to me, where I give you the money directly, but you take the score sheet and you walk down a few doors down and you are given instead of... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. So, so uh, you give me the sheet, sorry. So you give me the score sheet of 5, 10, 20, whatever, and then I give you wooden tokens. Okay? So if you say it's a 5, I give you 5 wooden tokens. If you told me you got a 20, I give you 20 wooden tokens. You take the tokens now, and then you take it to somebody else down the road, and you turn in your tokens, and if you have 20 tokens, you get $200. If you get five tokens, you get, you know, you get uh, $50. Okay? So the token is now introduced into the exact same setup. Okay? Now, what happens to the score? Why does it go up? Tokens don't mean the same as... And, and then why do you say that? Why don't you elaborate on that? Okay. Okay. Anybody have thoughts? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all explained as part of the study. Yeah. I mean, I mean, tokens itself has no value unless you turn it in, right? So you think the score will go up, say the same, or come down? Yeah, so it will go up because you don't, you don't think tokens themselves are any, of, of any value. Yeah, okay. So you guys are, you guys are right, which is uh, when you introduce a token, it went up even further. Okay, it actually tripled from the original condition, uh, so it went up to about nine. And I guess, again, many people claimed uh, uh, a 20. But this is what happened to the percent of sociopathy. Okay? It dramatically increased. Okay? So this is the second seminal concept, first one being reciprocity, second one being token effect. That is, for some reason, we will not, we're not likely to steal cash. Okay? But we feel okay stealing tokens. Okay, so what does that mean? And so why am I, you know, uh, going into this? Well, it turns out most of modern society, we don't deal with cash anymore. We deal with tokens. So, for example, uh, let's pick on lawyers since most of you are healthcare workers. Okay, so even the most dishonest lawyer is unlikely to punch a 90-year-old woman on the street and grab $500 from her, okay? That's probably not going to happen, okay? But that same person might feel okay of changing the contract, manipulating things, doing things through law to steal $500 from somebody, right? And same thing with politicians. Again, no one's going to probably directly go to a bank and steal money, but they may manipulate laws and their privilege and to do dishonest things for the same amount. How about physicians? Do we deal with cash most of the time? I know there are certain conditions where, where cash is actually transacted directly, but most of the time we deal through insurance companies. Right? Is it possible that physicians are more dishonest because of this setup? And that's what the evidence actually shows. Okay. So, um, so this is known as token effect. So here's a pretty uh, uh, well-known example, and you may have heard of things like this. Uh, you know, this is on the one end of the spectrum, of course. Uh, but uh, I think w when I was uh, uh, like, like actually putting this lecture together a number of years ago, uh, I came across a series of articles like this. So one of them here is an article in the New York Times in 2012 uh, where a hospital chain, I think this was down in Florida somewhere, where they were cited because cardiologists were performing cardiac catheterizations uh, and then they were putting stents in people with normal coronaries. Okay? So again, I don't think these cardiologists would go and mug an old lady. Okay? But they felt okay doing unnecessary procedures to make more money uh, uh, because of the token effect. And then finally, some nurse uh, had enough, you know, uh, gumption and morals to say, I think this is wrong, and, and, then, and then this person finally uh, uh, reported it, and then it led to some disciplinary action. And in case you think this is rare or something odd about Florida, uh, this is a, a very similar article, I think about the same time, uh, in the Washington Post, talking about a hospital in Maryland that was doing the exact same thing. And then again, in case you're going to want to blame it to all the people on the East Coast, uh, there's an actual book written about it called The Coronary. You know, this is about a team of cardiologists and cardiac surgeons who are doing cardiac bypass surgery on people with normal coronaries. Okay? And I'm not picking on cardiologists here. This is the same thing that can happen with neurosurgeons. It can happen with gastroenterologists. I mean, it doesn't matter. It just, you know, this is, an, unfortunately... Uh, a huge issue that people don't pay attention to. Okay? I, know, I know in my field of critical care medicine, you know, it's all about the, the number of critical care hours, and it's amazing how many, you know, how many doctors do exactly 31 minutes of critical care time, uh, because under 31 minutes, it's not critical care. <laughs> so everything just gets inflated. Okay? 
So this is called the Dartmouth Atlas. Uh, it's sort of a similar idea. What they're doing here is they're ranking the different states uh, uh, on, on, the, uh, um, on the rankings from, from, from the best to worst about the quality of their, uh, of their practice. So what they're doing is, you know, like, you know, if you have heart disease, are they doing the right things for heart disease? If you have diabetes, are they doing the right things for diabetes, et cetera? So, you, so I know these are kind of, t- you know, um, it's kind of small, but you can probably see your state up there somewhere. I think California and Florida is sort of on the down end of things, if you're, if you're wondering. Um, so, uh, so on the uh, y-axis are, are the overall rankings from top to bottom. Okay, so some states do better, some states do worse. What do you think is on the x-axis of this? Any guesses? Yeah, so something very close. It's the per capita Medicare spending. More money we spend in this country, the poorer the quality of care. It's actually mind-boggling. So, um, you know, I think there are uh, many campaigns like this, but one of them that I'm familiar with is by the the ABIM, uh, uh, which has a campaign called Choosing Wisely. Uh, There are multiple societies that have bought into this, and they're trying to identify, you know, things that are wasteful, uh, things that are unnecessary that shouldn't be done, uh, sometimes for ethical reasons, sometimes just because, you know, just a waste of money. Uh, and uh, I think back in 2012, they identified 130 different practices that should no longer be done, that are being commonly done, uh, and they keep revising it every year. Okay. Now, I want to uh, put this in context because um, according to this data that you see there, the, you know, what they call, quote-unquote, ethics-related medical waste, that's a polite term for things like fraud, okay? but, but it, 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 it's what they call ethics-related medical waste, is $395 billion a year. Okay? That's stuff that we're responsible for. Uh, in contrast, things that we normally think about, theft, like robbery, burglary, is only $16 billion a year. Okay? So actually, collectively, uh, especially as Christian physicians, I think this is something that we need to take ownership of uh, and make sure we're practicing ethically. Um, I just put a, uh, a quick reminder about Kenya. Uh, you know, uh, I spent a number of years in Kenya, and I was actually shocked that in Kenya there was no continuing medical education program without drug company sponsorship. I was actually horrified. And all of the, like the medical officers and, and the physicians who are going to CME conferences, they're all getting paid by the drug companies to go uh, and spend their hotels and meals over there. And I, I, and I just couldn't believe this was happening uh, in places like that. Okay, um, so here is um, a um, this confirmation of a similar concept. This is a paper in 2018 by Schwartz. They're looking at uh, a... Um, over 3 million Medicare patients uh, who are cared for by 41,000 patients. So a huge data set. And what they identify is that out of 100 people, there were 33 unnecessary things that they consider low value that were done. These are very, very common. Uh, it's a common occurrence. Um, then what they identified is that there are some characteristics that, that makes you more likely to perform these low-value services. And one of them is age. That is, older you are, more likely you're going to perform uh, low-value services. Okay? So, uh, it, it, in part, uh, it may be a matter of education and continuing education. And for some reason, actually, women were more likely to do this than, than men. Again, I have no great explanation for that. But the most uh, important thing I want to point out is any, any pharmaceutical company and or device company payment to the physician was a major risk factor for performing low-value services, which is no, no surprise. Okay? That's reciprocity and token effect. And what percentage of us have these drug company relationships? It's 55% of us. Okay? So I would challenge you, especially if you're a Christian physician, about this kind of relationship. 
Um, I think somebody was asking about the Sunshine Act. Um, uh, uh, as an example, when I teach my medical students or residents about this concept, I have them look up uh, every first author of a research paper and every last author, because last author is usually the senior author, and those two authors at the minimum, and you go to that website called openpayments.com, and you can type in their names, and then you can see whether or not those researchers were paid by uh, a drug company or a device company. They're required by law to report uh, anything within the last two years. It's not 100% accurate, unfortunately, because not everybody complies with it, but it uh, it can be very enlightening. Okay. All right, so now let's, let's apply these concepts of reciprocity and token effect uh, to some, uh, some dimensions of our, of our day-to-day lives. I want to start with uh, its impact on sort of medical education, okay? Uh, so this paper comes from actually University of Pittsburgh, um, and, and this is a, an older paper looking at uh, people applying to fellowship programs uh, at University of Pittsburgh, and the fellowship is actually uh, GI. So I think uh, uh, for those of you who are not uh, who are not familiar with it, uh, there are many subspecialties within medicine, and GI is one of the more lucrative and 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 and, and also the more competitive fellowships to get into. So it's, so you have to be very good as an internal medicine resident. Uh, and so how do you make yourself stand out and saying you're a great candidate for the fellowship? What do you have to do? Publish, right? So you have, to, you have to publish research papers. So what they did here was uh, they took the 236 applicants who had applied. They took those who said, I have published the paper. Then what they did was they just waited for the season to end. Then they looked at the people who said they had uh, published the paper. Then they went through great lengths, 18 months later, just to give it plenty of time, to verify whether or not they were telling the truth. Okay? So what did they do? So if, if the applicant supplied the copy of the article in the application, they said, okay, it looks like they published the paper. Reasonable. They did a Medline search, which is fairly easy to do. Okay? If, was, if you could find it, they published the paper. If a mentor or some professor said, uh, so-and-so published the paper, then they took that as confirmation as well. Fourth, they hired a librarian to do an exhaustive search through the National Library of Medicine and then something called the Ulrich's International Periodical Directory. So basically, a librarian went through great lengths to see if this was really true. Any of you have recently applied or will be applying to a residency or fellowship? Okay, so keep this in mind, okay? So so what they want to know is how many, what percentage of people actually could not be verified if you claim that you published the paper. What do you think that number is? 75%. 75%. Okay, why do you say 75%? Well, first, before the internet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you know, well, actually, it's Medline, so, uh, so actually, I, I think this is actually with the internet era, okay? So, uh, so I don't think that's necessarily true, but even, even prior to that, okay? <laughs> Yeah, but, but, but even before that, you know, there were older ways to look up articles, by the way. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but, but there, you can still go to the library and uh, look, look up. There are indices and stuff, okay? But, but, but thank you for that, okay? But, but, but you think it's very high, okay? So, uh, any other opinions? Yeah. 25%. So why do you say 25% as opposed to 75%? It's a significant part of the application. Yeah. Yeah, so you, so you're saying that it's verifiable and easy to verify, but you still think 25% of people would have lied, though, which is, which is quite a, you know, if you got caught, boy, I, I'm not sure what would happen to you. I don't, I don't think you would ever be allowed to, allowed to progress in most programs. So, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it, I mean to me it's kind of mind-boggling, but, uh, but, but actually what they found is very close to what you said, 
which is that a, a 30% of people had claimed to have published a paper when they had not. And then, you know, in case you think there's, there's something odd about GI, or this is 1995, or University of Pittsburgh, et cetera, et cetera, this has been duplicated in the urology application process. It's also been uh, uh, replicated in the infectious disease uh, world, which is, is, which is quite a bit less competitive than GI. Okay? So it, it's actually been duplicated multiple times, that there's a significant minority of people who seem to be falsifying uh, easily verifiable records like this. So again, think about token effect. I don't think they would be stealing money, but they're willing to be dishonest uh, in these token areas. So uh, let's move on to when you're interpreting research. So here is a pretty classic paper by Alice Nielsen that I think everyone should be aware of. What what they're doing here is they're looking at Cochrane reviews, uh, and they selected 25 of them. That includes a total of 370 randomized controlled trials of drugs. Uh, And what they did was they scored their conclusion from a scale of 1 through 6. So 1 simply means that the control drug is better than the new drug that they're they're testing, so it should be the the standard of care. And 6 is the exact opposite. 6 is the new drug seems to be the, uh, the new standard of care. So what they did was they looked at all 370, and the median score was a 5. So most of the research seems to say the new stuff is better than the old. Okay? Uh, and the percent of the studies that got a 6, that is the new treatment is the new standard of care, was, uh, was more than a third, so 36%. Then what they did was they broke it down into those studies that had a conflict of interest versus not, so nonprofit mixed versus for-profit. And I think at this stage, you can guess what they're going to find. Okay? But uh, there's a direct correlation with a conflict of interest, four, five, and six. And if you had a profit motive, okay, the majority of the papers always seems to favor the, uh, the uh, new, uh, new treatment. So here's an example of one of those things. And I find this actually quite humorous. So I'm going to include it here. This actually comes from the psychiatry world, so where they took uh, 42 RCTs uh, doing head-to-head comparison of second-generation antipsychotics for schizophrenia. So head-to-head comparison means you're comparing two known drugs, you know, one versus the other to see which is better. And then uh, second-generation antipsychotics might be, you know, might be drugs like olanzapine and, and, and things of that class. Okay? So, um, so what, they, what they looked at is of the 42 trials, uh, how many of the studies actually favored the funding source? Right? So, in, in other words, if Roche sponsored a trial, okay, and Roche had a particular drug, what was the conclusion of that study result, do you think? It's going to favor their product. How often did that happen? They found it happened 90% of the time. It's almost, you don't even almost need to do the experiment. <laughs> You're pretty sure what's going to show, okay? But I love this part about it. So, uh, you know, this is sort of the syllogism that you might learn about in logic class, right? So let's say, um, let's say there are three people here, okay? Let's say there is person A is here, I'm person B, person C is here, okay? So if you know that person B, me, is taller than person A, okay, and then person C is taller than me, person B. What can you conclude about person A and person C? Okay? So logic would say person C should be taller than person A, right? That, 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 that only makes sense, right? But, but what do you think happens here? If you have this kind of bias, okay, what happens is this, which is the, actually the humorous title of this paper, is that why does olanzapine beat risperidone, but risperidone beat ketiapine and ketiapine beat olanzapine, okay? Because that's what they find in this paper, that it's, it's really up to the sponsor, not to the actual drug or its, its, its clinical outcome. So here's, a, um, here's an interesting example, and if you're not aware of it, uh, this was a, a drug called uh, bisoprolol, which is a beta blocker. Uh, this was a New England Journal paper in the 1990s. Uh, it's called a decrease trial. So what they did here was they gave uh, 
beta blockers to high-risk uh, surgery patients uh, uh, um, versus control. And what they found was a significant reduction in mortality if you gave uh, beta blockers perioperatively. Okay? So it was a pretty uh, interesting finding. So it wasn't just this study, but multiple studies by the same authors show the same benefit. So it quickly became standard care to say, you know what, if you're a good hospital, you better be giving beta blockers for major surgery. Okay? In fact, if you didn't, you got penalized because you're saying, you know, we're not practicing good medicine. So, you know, you're not a good doctor. You're not a good hospital. You, you know, you're a bad anesthesiologist, etc. But it turns out that uh, this was um, what was found is that a few years later, they realized that this data could not be reproduced. And then when they looked at the original, uh, um, original uh, paper, the authors had no data behind their results. In other words, they appeared to have fabricated the entire, uh, entire data set. Now, this is an extreme example. It doesn't happen all the time. But you, you need to be aware of these things like this because this is what the clinical consequence is. Okay? They think that this has led to, as you can see, uh, 800,000 deaths in Europe over the last 15 years. Okay? And some estimates in, in the U.S. say that more people died from this intervention than people who died in the Vietnam War and subsequently. So these are huge ethical issues for you to be aware of. Um, one of my favorite authors actually had been this man named Dan Ariely, and he has written a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. It's a very interesting book, but it actually turns out that even he had fabricated data, and he's an he's a, he's a ethics integrity researcher, unfortunately. Um, and, and these are the two specific studies, if you're curious, uh, that he, he seems to have fabricated. I mean, it's still an allegation, so I shouldn't say that beyond that, but uh, that he's... Uh, in some hot waters. Um, okay, so, and then, let me make a quick point here, so there are 10 minutes, is, um, you, know, um, he, you know, here's a cross-sectional study of some, some, um, some cardiology studies. As you can see here, 53% of the studies had uh, some commercial sponsorship. Uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes this is just the real world because, the, because these trials are very expensive. But, uh, the percent that did not declare their conflict of interest in the publication is actually 42%. So in other words, if you are relying on what they published in the paper to say, oh, you know, this company is sponsored by so-and-so or, you know, or so-and-so was paid, unfortunately, that's not enough. Okay? Um, because, the, uh, because they don't always declare the conflict of interest. And then also, uh, 84 trials were clearly negative, meaning that it doesn't seem to work. Uh, but uh, in 65% of the negative trials, the author spun the results and made it seem like it was positive. Okay? So, so, so many people are in the habit of looking just at the conclusion of the trial. Okay? They don't read the methods. They don't read anything fine detail. Look at the conclusion saying, look, look, there's evidence that this works or it doesn't work. And I think that's what leads to a lot of anti-science kind of movements uh, that, that you need to be careful of. Again, I want to point you to the website called openpayments.com or the openpaymentsdata.com that will give you these conflict of interest because they don't always publish those. Okay? All right, so, so let me wrap up with this idea, which is the idea of peer review because you, because you would think that, that the peer review should take care of all of these things, but in reality, uh, like all human things, it, it's imperfect. So here's a pretty uh, interesting paper in science. Uh, they're looking at the concept of how well does peer review work. And, you know, this is for uh, um, a set of journals called open access journals. So if you're not familiar with that term, uh, there are things like the New England Journal of Medicine where a subscriber, like a physician, would have to pay for or a university would have to pay for. There are things that are free that are called open access journals, and which means the authors pay to get their articles published, but, but it's open on the Internet and you can download it and read it for free. It was thought to be a great way to sort of democratize science. So, for example, if you are working in Kenya uh, and you might not be able to afford for a subscription to the New England Journal of Medicine, but these open access journals, you can have free access to it. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a nice idea. Okay? But, uh, but they're looking at uh, um, uh, how good the peer review is for that. 
So what they did here was they took 304 submissions, um, and uh, 98 were rejected, and 157 were accepted. So they submitted an article, and about half were accepted. But the problem is they basically fabricated the study and made it seem so bad that, that nobody in their right mind would actually publish this paper. Okay? So why would 154 journals accept papers? Because who's paying? The authors are paying, so what's the incentive of the publishers? Okay? Is to accept because they get paid. If they reject and they're too much scrutiny, they don't get paid. Okay? So be careful what kind of sources you are using to quote to your colleagues or to your patients. Okay? Some things have very poor um, quality control. This is a map of where some of these open access journals are. As you can see, there's a big concentration in India. Uh, there's some in Nigeria, but there's a ton from the U.S. Uh, and, and Europe as well. And uh, uh, so be careful of these things. And by the way, e even the journals that are like actually published in India, it, it may say the American Journal or something else because it just sounds a little bit more, more, uh, more rigorous. So, so I'll give you an example of this, you know, in case you, you're not quite sure of the kind of things that are, uh, that are out there. So this is a reporter, uh, last name Spears, uh, for a Canadian newspaper. So he read that same paper, and he was intrigued. So he decided to do his own spoof, basically. Okay? So he made up his own paper. Okay? It, it's, it's just garbage. But what he did was he combined three different real articles. Okay? One from a hematology journal. Okay? Another from geology. And... And third, from wine sciences. And all he did was copy and paste different sections and put it together into one paper. Okay? In other words, it's, it's plagiarized. He literally copied and pasted different parts. Okay? And, um, and so to make this paper work, he um, um, basically um, uh, made up terms like seismic platelets. Right? <laughs> Geology and hematology. Okay? And he took pictures of Mars because it looked kind of cool. Okay? Uh, and he put up un unrelated graphs. He used baseball players and senators for authors, uh, fake university, and he submitted it to 18 different uh, open access journals to see what would happen. Okay? Only one rejected it. Eight never responded for some reason. Eight accepted this paper. Uh, and one, which is probably the most interesting one, says, if you revise this and this and this... <laughs> Maybe now we'll accept it. Okay? But, I mean, I mean, we all laugh, but you've got to be careful at what you're reading. You've got to be careful at what you're, uh, you know, what you're citing. Okay? All right. So, I think that comes to the end. So, I'll stop here. And I apologize. We, got, we had a little audiovisual trouble. We got a little late start. So, uh, so I can stay from you, up, you know, a few minutes if, you, if you're able. But if you have to go, I understand. Okay? Thank you. Any questions? Uh, and, and if you need to leave, you can just leave, not to stay. Yeah. You talked about the kind of reverse correlation between the amount of money spent on healthcare and the quality of healthcare. Yeah. Do you think that has any impact for discussions about how to revise the healthcare system in the U.S.? I mean, I think, I think there is a lot of implications, but, uh, you know, but exactly how to do that, that's the controversy, right? I'm not sure who has the right solution, you know, and, and that requires a lot, lot deeper discussion than what we're able to do here. But absolutely, I, I mean, I think, I think we spend so much money here, there's certainly better ways to use it, yeah. And, 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 you know, and keep in mind, we don't always have the best outcomes in this country either. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for improvement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, you know, uh, okay, so, like, um, um, people have recognized these things being real problems, so there's no denying that these are real problems, um, and so, for example, the, uh, the major journals, like the New England Journal, for example, had said, we, everybody has to abide by these standards. The problem is, it's like saying everyone should go at the speed limit, you know, there's occasional enforcement, but most people go above the speed limit, okay? And so that's what's happening in this world is that there is consensus that things need to change and these policies make sense. 
But as far as, uh, you know, uh, people abiding by it, number one, and also anyone willing to actually regulate it and sort of somehow, you know, keep people accountable is very poorly done right now. So, uh, so do I have hope? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I think things are getting better, but incredibly slowly. But in the meanwhile, I think especially as Christian physicians or, or pharmacists or nurses, you really have to be aware of these kinds of things because I think it's part of our duty as Christians it, it is to understand these ethical principles. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, anybody else? Okay, if not, thank you very much. <laughs>